Well, good morning, church. Um, it's a joy to be able to be here, and um, Doug had some very kind words to say. And I just want to just take this opportunity, honestly, to thank you guys. Um, you know, just as I think about what privilege it is and honor it is to serve God's people, um, there is um, no reason why I should be one who gets to do that. And so I just thank you guys so much for the opportunity to support that you have given Faith Academy. Um, just being able to get behind a vision of Parkview East. I um, just really want to thank you guys. So um, Christmas is upon us. I don't know if you guys, you're, they have kids at home that were excited to wake up and see the snow. Usually my kids like to sleep in as much as possible, but I knew that I saw the snow and it's just like, wake up, it's snowing. We had one who'd been watching the weather all week long, praying that snow would show up miraculously. And so God is faithful um, and his snow is a reminder of that um, in the Fern household this morning. Um, I don't know if your house is like mine, but anticipation around this year is at an all-time high this morning. And much of the focus in our house has been on gifts. Again, I don't know if you can relate to this, but for weeks, for months, maybe for me like the last day or two, there has been a lot of time, energy, creative energy, and money spent on getting those closest to us really good gifts. And this tradition, the tradition of giving gifts to one another to celebrate Christmas is really a special thing. And, and my hope for you is that over the course of the next couple of days, as you exchange gifts, that this tradition uh, would stir your affections for the greatest gift giver of all time. My hope this morning is that we would get the party started just a little early as we unwrap one of the, the gifts that he has given to us, the gift of grace. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 primarily. We might go to one other place this morning, but for the most part, we'll be in Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read our text for us, and then we will we'll pray, and then we'll get started. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we enter into this place this morning, Father, Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts, that you would direct our minds, Lord, and that we would be able to see um, how glorious and how generous you are, Father. I pray that as we take a look at the, the grace that you offered to Paul, the grace that you offered to the brothers and sisters in Rome, Father, Lord, I pray that as we look and examine the grace that you offer and freely extend to each of us this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would convict our hearts. Lord, that you would capture our ears. 
Lord, that we might receive your grace this morning, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. In his classic work, All of Grace, Charles Haddon Spurgeon opens up the book with a story. And it's a story of a pastor who, in the day, he, he was, one particular day, the, the thought of a woman, a poor widow woman that was in his congregation came into his mind, and, and God laid it on his spirit to bless this woman. And so this pastor gets a gift, some money together, and, and makes his way to this poor widow's home. As he gets to the doorstep and, and begins to knock on the door, he's excited for the gift that he's about to extend to this woman, but knock after knock after knock, and there is no answer, no answer at all. So after a few minutes of, of knocking and maybe growing a little discouraged, the pastor eventually makes his way back to his home. Later that week, pastor's at church, and he, and he meets the poor widow, and, and he begins to tell her, hey, I, I came by your house earlier this week, and I knocked, and I knocked, and I knocked, and you, you weren't home. And she says, oh, I, I was home, and, and I, I heard you knocking, but I thought you were the landlord who was coming to collect the rent, and so I didn't have the money and didn't want to receive this burden and this duty that was laid on me, so I just ignored the knock and went about my business. You see, I think for many of us, as we approach church sometimes on a morning or anytime we open up Scripture or we are in, a, in an atmosphere, an environment where the Word of God is declared, a lot of times we can act just like that poor widow. And, and my challenge for you this morning is to not ignore the knock. See, oftentimes, now if you have a cell phone like me one of the last couple of years, the things that has been most frustrating to me is that somehow the, the, the folks who want my money, all right, who want to place a burden on me, want me to buy something, know how to reach me from my cell phone. And it's extremely frustrating, so much to the point where I no longer answer numbers that I do not recognize because I'm sure they are calling because they want to demand something from me. I don't know if, if you can relate to that, but the amazing thing about God's grace and what I want to invite you to this morning is not to walk into this place and approach this text thinking that God wants to demand something from us. In fact, a lot of times that's the reason we ignore the knock. It's because we are afraid of the burden or the duty that will be placed on us. But see, when that woman ignored the knock, she missed the gift. She missed the gift. And so this morning, there will not be an added duty or a burden that will be placed on you. This morning, I want to invite you to simply enter this text as one who receives. God is a generous God, and the salvation that he offers us all is all of grace. He's not making some demand upon you this morning, but he's bringing something to you. The gospel is not a burden or even good advice of what you must do. The gospel is about what's been done for you and freely given to you. Now, in, in most messages, I'm very aware and I try very hard to, to think through ways that we can practically apply what the Word 
is calling us to. Ways that we can bring our life in accordance with what Jesus wants for us. The truths that we will discuss this morning will have radical implications when applied to your life. The grace that we receive from God should directly and continually inform and shape all of your life. Yet my objective this morning is simple. It's twofold. One, receive the gift of grace. Not an added duty or a burden. God's grace comes to us this morning as a gift. Receive it. And, and the second thing that I would hope for this morning is that you would grow. Maybe some of you have received this gift, and, and my hope and my prayer is that you would grow in this gift all of life every day you would grow in your understanding of your need for God's grace you know when I got my first iPhone years ago I was very excited and and honestly when I first got it and got that thing connected and was using it it was like hallelujah right this is awesome revolutionary okay but if you're like me and you have an iPhone or any kind of smartphone, the truth is we're probably just, scratch I know I am, I can only speak for myself, scratching the surface of what that phone can do. It seems like every week I'm finding out something new I can do with my phone. Every day I'm growing in how, my understanding of how to use this device. God's grace is the same way. When you receive it, joy. But every day, every day we should grow in our understanding how much we need it, and what it accomplishes for us. So to accomplish this, of grace, we'll take a look at the history of grace, and then finally we will see the life of grace. So the first thing up is the gospel of grace. If you spend much time here at Parkview, the word gospel is a word that you will hear over and over again. It is a word that we should all be familiar with and grow in our understanding and application of. To say that we are a Christian people. If you are here this morning and you say, I am a, a Christian, to say we are a Christian people is to say that we are a gospel people. The gospel is essential for our salvation and it is essential for our life, for the daily living, forgiving, and walking with Jesus. We are a gospel people. Paul is writing this letter, these verses to the church at Rome, which is made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Romans is a rich letter, and historically it has been instrumental in the conversion of many great theologians and church leaders. Historically, this letter is considered by many to be the most complete summary of the gospel. And so to understand what this word, looking at the gospel of grace, and if I just split those words up to understand what the gospel means, we know that in the original text what it means is good news. That's what it means, good news. But if you were to read through Romans, you could quickly get an understanding of what this good news is about by simply looking at the three words that Paul uses the most throughout the book. The three words that he uses over and over and over again. The first word that Paul uses, the word he uses the most in the letter of the Romans is God. Romans 1, 1, we learn that this is the gospel of God. The good news is brought about by God, the one true righteous God, perfectly loving 
yet also righteous judge. When we're at Faith Academy, we have been doing this catechism this past year. And if you were to walk into that school, and if you were to ask all 72 of those scholars, and if you were to ask this question, what is God? All 72 of them would stand up and they would say, God is the creator of everyone and everything, period. That's what they would say. God is the creator. He is the all-powerful, unmatched being in all of the world. He is all-powerful, utterly good, and yet he is also the judge. He has a standard. The next word that we learn that Paul uses the most throughout, second most throughout the book of Romans is the word law. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God is on a mission to make for himself a people. One of the defining moments for his people was that God gave them the law. As we may know them, the Ten Commandments, summarized ultimately by loving God and loving God others. The purpose of this law was to reveal the holy nature of God. But in doing so, it also exposed the sinful nature of our hearts. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, even on our best day, like even when you, like Christmas Eve morning, when the family's looking as good as the family has ever looked, when the hair is parted perfectly, when you are dotting every I and crossing every T, like I'm talking when you're looking good, all right? On that day, some of you are like, I haven't seen that day for a while. I feel you. I've been there. I even had to go get, you know, cut up a little bit this morning before or yesterday. Just, you know, got to look good, right? Even on your best day. What Paul tells us is you are still a sinner. God's standard you don't meet. Even when you're trying your hardest, when the New Year's resolutions for the next week, you're actually nailing them, you're still falling short. We don't meet. God has a standard, and his standard is perfect. God's law reveals his holy nature, and it exposes our sinful hearts. Luckily, the, the word that is used next most in the letter to the Romans is Christ. What, what do we do about this problem? We are separated from God. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, while we are still sinners, like even on our worst day, Christ died for us. He took the death that was due to us. Scott McKnight has a great summary. The gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of a community for the good of others and the world. That's what the gospel is. This is a gospel of grace. What is this word grace? Well, we see a few things in this first couple of verses that teach us about grace. The grace Paul received is offered. It comes from God. Grace is not God's response according to what we have earned. Grace is God's free gift, completely apart from the good that we have done. In fact, in his grace, it is his grace that allows us to do anything good at all. Romans 4.4, 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. In other words, grace is not what you get when you work for somebody. That's what he owes you. Grace is never owed. It's always free, a free gift from the overflow of God's 
goodness. For example, I went to get my hair cut yesterday. And sometimes when I think about grace, I think of it like a tip, like a bonus, right? So you get your hair cut. After you pay, you square up. And you get a little extra on the side, a little bit of a tip. But, but grace can't be like a tip because there was a duty performed, right? It's not just me being a little extra generous. That's not the idea of grace. Grace would be like somebody walking into that barbershop before the scissors even touched the head and saying, here's $100, deuces, I'm out. That's what grace is. Completely unearned, totally undeserved. God's grace to us. The next thing we learn is that this grace is rooted in the Old Testament. This grace comes to us from God that we read about here in the New Testament. It is not plan B. Paul tells us in verse 2 that this grace is that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It is not as if the Old Testament reflects a failed attempt to bring about a people to God. So God then sends his son as some sort of last-ditch effort to right the ship. No. The grace that we read about is the plan from the beginning of time. The Old Testament promises of a grace that is to come. The presentation of the gospel of grace we see here in Romans is the fruition of or the fulfillment of what God had already set forth in the Old Covenant scriptures spoken through the Old Covenant promises and prophets. Next thing that we learn is that this grace is centered around Jesus Christ, and this is key. This is a grace concerning, Paul says, his son. Contrary to how many people think of grace, grace comes to us not in the form of some mystical substance, like here is your grace, Bruce, and you have a certain amount of it that's dedicated and reserved for you. But grace comes to us in the form of a person. The Father lovingly, graciously planned salvation. The Son willingly affected salvation. This is an important distinction as we understand the gift of God's grace to us. Sinclair Ferguson says this, God does not become gracious to me because Jesus died for us. I think some of us think about grace like that. Like some of us think of God as this judge who, who maybe is, is mean and, and Jesus comes down and, and he sees the separation that exists between this all-powerful judge and his poor, innocent, helpless people. And Jesus steps up to the plate and says, I got this one. Let me get you to God. And so God sits as this, this mean sort of tyrant. That's not the idea at all, right? John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his, son, his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died for me because God is gracious to me. This is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of grace. The next point is that as we look in these verses, what we learn about grace is that this grace has a, uh, this grace is a person. The grace is primarily a person, Jesus Christ. This grace has a story. It's the history of grace. We see here in verse 3 that Paul talks about Jesus. He, he makes a point that Jesus descended from David. This is the history of grace. This grace which is promised in the Old Testament, revealed and affected through life, death and resurrection of Jesus, it has a history. And, and to show the history, I think it's important for us to look at, at, at the gospel story. 
when we find the story of Jesus. And one of the ones that I wanted to turn to this morning was the book of Matthew, where Matthew tells the story of Christ. And it's interesting how Matthew starts off as he examines the story of Jesus. Matthew picks an interesting starting point, which reveals a lot about the grace of God. And I'm just going to read it to you. You can turn if you want, but there's going to be some names, and they might be difficult to read or pronounce, but just bear with me. You give me grace. How about that? A little bit of grace with the names this morning. Thank you. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 um, through 6, and then we'll go 12 through 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, you would think if Matthew was to start telling the story, like, what better way to allow people to just check out than starting with just a list of names? Just a list of names. In fact, I think there's a lot of folks who may, who may want to learn about Jesus who pick up this and start hearing Matthew, and after just a few verses, they, just, they get discouraged with the name Name after name after name, and they think that's all the scripture is, that's all the Bible is, is this guy begat that guy, and these guys begat that guy, and on and on and on the story goes. Why would Matthew start here? Well, Matthew starts here for a couple of reasons. First, in ancient times, this genealogy would have served as some It would have been common to tinker with it like it is today, to kind of present the person in the greatest light possible. But Matthew doesn't tinker with the resume. There are some names in this list that you think if you want to put Jesus up and to be seen in the greatest light possible, why would you put that name in here? Five women are mentioned here and back in the day you would have left those women out. You would have just focused on the men. But Matthew includes them. Another reason why Matthew would include this genealogy was to show that Jesus came from the royal line of David. This was critical because according to the Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was to come from the line of David. But the final reason, what I think is most helpful for us this morning, is that through the genealogy of Jesus, we see evidence of the amazing grace of God. Through a careful reading of these names, we learn who this grace is ultimately for. This grace that God gives us, this gift that we unwrap and we remember and celebrate every Christmas morning, who is this grace for? Well, if you look at these names, you could, 
you could summarize it with two different groups of people. God's grace is for those who have sinned. All right, there's names in this list, names of people who are, who are murderers, who are scandalous, adulterers, involved in prostitution, in the family tree of Jesus. Men who have done heinous things. God's grace is for those who have sinned. We also learn as we examine these names that God's grace is for those who have been sinned against. I mentioned there was five women that he named, and if you look at these women and you go back into the Old Testament and you read their stories, I think Rahab is one that comes to mind. A lot of times when people talk about Rahab, they think, oh, Rahab, well, she was a prostitute, a sinner, right? But in those days, really what Rahab was is she was caught in a system where she was abused time and time again by man after man after man in her life. And she had no way out. Was there sin? Was she a sinner? Absolutely. But Rahab was, all, was also incredibly sinned against Think of Tamar. I mean, you want some Maury Povich stuff on a Christmas Eve morning, go to Genesis 38 and you'll get some Maury Povich, okay? The, the story of Tamar is a sad, sad story. Genesis 38, you read it, and, and essentially she was brought to be married to, a, a, a man went and got her and, and found her to be married to one of his sons. The son dies, so he marries her to the next son. Well, that son dies as well. And so he thinks, well, this isn't going real well with my kids, right? So let's just kind of hide her off in a place and I'll promise her my next son, but we'll just kind of keep that away because I don't want him to die too. And eventually she tricks the father-in-law, her father-in-law into sleeping with her and, and they have a kid together and the story is crazy, okay? But she was, she was incredibly abused and neglected and completely forgotten about. Think of Bathsheba, right? And you can go down the list. In light of recent news, what we see is that the Bible is incredibly relevant today. See, over the past couple of months, there has been story after story of sexual assault that women have experienced at the hands of powerful and prominent men. And it seems that no industry really has gone untouched. Entertainment is there, business, political, journalism, on and on you can go and what is even worse is that we know these stories or they're drawing headlines are really just a microcosm of a larger cultural phenomenon, right? Through the hashtag MeToo, we've seen story after story of women share how they too have been be abused. This is a cultural moment that should bring about grieving and repentance. And my guess is for many of us in the room today, when we think of our story, we are tempted to think about it in terms of either what we have done or what has been done to us. But what we see in the genealogy of Jesus is that God identifies with people and he rewrites their story. God sends his son and plants him in history. He does it in a way that allows him to identify with sinners and with those who've been deeply sinned against. God does not overlook them. He doesn't overlook them. God doesn't sweep their stories under the rug. The kind of stories that Matthew is intentional in including here are the stories that, that we would be tempted to leave out. These stories are the type that we would normally turn into deep family secrets, yet here they are, preserved for generations. See, the truth is we all 
have stories. There's not anybody in the room who doesn't have a story or a secret that you would do a great deal to keep from bringing to light. And maybe these are things that have been done by you, and maybe these are things that have been done to you. Adultery, drug abuse, financial scandal, relational strife. Our nature wants to hide and disassociate from the sin, from the secrets in our past. This is how the world works. Wherever We see it right now happening on the front page. Wherever there is scandal, there's disassociation. Get as far from it as you can. Matthew is trying to make an important point that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, God doesn't disassociate from us. He identifies with us. Martin Luther said it like this, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even put them in his family tree. One of the reasons why you can look at these verses and see the evidence of grace all over them. Rahab's life, a mess. Bathsheba, David's sin were heinous. Tamar was a mess. But out of their mess came the Messiah. Where our story could be dominated with what we have done or with what has been done to us, the history of God's grace is the story of what's been done for us. That's our story. Abraham, an idolater. David, an adulterer. Rahab, a prostitute. Paul, the one who's writing these words himself, he was a murderer. Peter, a liar. Thomas, a doubter. On and on and on you could go. Whatever our brokenness, it falls exhausted at the feet of God. last thing we learn from this text about this gift that God gives us is the life of grace. There's two phrases just to focus on real quick. First phrase is this obedience of faith. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith is not just the means by which we receive grace. This grace also in our life, active, aims to produce, to bring about obedience of faith. True, genuine faith will produce obedience. Faith is not simply an intellectual handling of a series of propositions, but surrender to the one who asks for our faith. To surrender to God is to obey God. So grace is the power and the enabling of obedience. It's all true obedience is done by the power of his grace, not by our own power. We see, if you were to look through the verses, that this grace connects us, it unites us. A people who have no business being together, Jews and Gentiles, this grace of God has brought them together and given them a new identity, a new community, one that is marked not by their ethnicity, not by their cultural origin, not by their language, but by his grace. It unites God's people. And I can think of no time in our culture, and our history, when we need this more. When we are tempted to divide based on political persuasion or race, God's grace unites us. 
And as long as we're under his grace, we fight for that unity. Paul has a calling, right? He was one who was on a mission to destroy and shut down Christianity, but now God has called him. He's an apostle. He has completely redirected Paul's life. It calls us, it gives us purpose and mission in our life. It changes us. Paul is the example. A life of grace is a life transformed. And many of you know this well. I know my story and I know what it looked like before I received his grace. And I know what it looks like day by day as I walk in it. Completely different. I don't stand up here this morning as somebody who has a great uh, degree or somebody who has a long track record of success. What qualifies me more than anything to be here this morning is the grace that God pours out and has lavished on me. Our life is a life marked by grace. What's the aim? What's the purpose of this grace? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The promised Messiah, the one that we celebrate this weekend, did not come for the benefit of one group or of people or nation alone. This gospel is good news for all who respond in faith, who receive his grace by faith. When people from every nation Christ and demonstrate their faith by the obedience it brings forth, then his name will be honored among all the nations. So I'll finish just by the way I started off this morning. First question is, I think, you know, one of the greatest things that you could do, one of the greatest gifts that you could receive, and I know you probably got some good gift givers in your life, but one of the greatest gifts, the greatest gift that you could receive this morning, this weekend, would be the gift of God's grace. And I just want to ask, have you received it? Do you know that grace? And then the second question is, maybe you have, Maybe there's a point in your life when you can look back and say, that's when by faith I reached out and received this gift. And then my question is, are you walking in that grace? Are you growing in the grace, this amazing gift that God gives us and that we celebrate this morning? Do you know what it means day by day to walk in it and to grow in it? Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, just as we think about, Lord, your generosity. We thank you that as we know that you are the creator of everyone and everything, Lord, and that you are a great, powerful, mighty God, Lord. If you weren't a good God, Lord, we would be trembling in our seats in fear right now. Lord, we thank you that as you are a great God, you also are a gives good gifts to his children. Lord, and you've given us the sending of your son, Lord, the greatest gift we could ever receive. And I pray that if there's, if there's folks right now in the room who, who are afraid to even receive it because they're, they're thinking only of the duty or the burden that would be placed on their life if they do, Lord, Father, I pray, um, Lord, that you would reveal to them that the goodness of this gift is one Lord, um, it makes all of the gifts pale in comparison. We love you and we ask these things.